Thanks for joining us for episode 33 of Practically Ranching. I'm Matt Perrier. This week's installment is a special one for several reasons. The first of which, because it's with my dad, Tom Perrier. Next, it coincides with an award that he and, and all of our family are receiving this week at the annual KSU Stockman's Banquet prior to uh, K-State's Cattlemen's Day up in Manhattan. This is an award that the Livestock and Meat Industry Council sponsors each year, and, it, and it's one that means a lot to our family. Uh, we don't do what we do for awards or commendations. I don't, I don't think anyone in agriculture really does. But we're most appreciative of this award because it was a catalyst to do several things that we likely should have already done anyway. Uh, first off, it inspired us to schedule a photo for our family. My siblings and their families were all in town for Christmas, and, and we got everybody together and, and got a photo for this award and for all of us. Uh, second of all, it got Dad and I to sit down and research a little history and to connect a few dots that uh, we weren't totally certain of regarding the Dale Banks and the Perrier family history. And thirdly, it gave me several different opportunities to visit with Dad about things that we rarely make time for, old stories, uh, events, and, and people that I may not have witnessed firsthand. Dad may not have even witnessed firsthand. But I for sure needed to hear about some of these stories and some of these events to fully appreciate what makes up Dale Banks Angus and the people that are involved. You know, I'm listening to a, a daily podcast for Lent, and last week's theme was humility. Ironically, I was simultaneously supposed to be helping folks at KSU put on the finishing touches for this big fancy award dinner that'll be honoring Dad and all of our family in Manhattan this week. So as I'm talking about all this pomp and circumstance that's going to be honoring our family, I didn't feel very humble. In fact, I, I even felt a bit guilty, but then I had to think about the fact that just as you'll hear from Dad in this upcoming episode, our family has always been pretty focused on learning and on teaching and sharing with those around us and with each other. Just like you, we aren't in the cattle business for accolades. Most years, we're not even in it for the money, unfortunately. We're in the cattle business because we were somehow called to do it. Whether it took a world war or, or two, in our case, a death in the family or any other events, life events, to, to kind of coax us into ranching, quite often, that's how all of us got here. But once we got here, we embraced the work, and we embraced the people, we embraced the culture, and we figured out ways to overcome the many challenges that may come our way to raise the best genetics, the best cattle, and the best kids that we can in the process. It's no different than your family, I would guess, and it's no different than nearly every ranching family out there. So I hope you'll uh, enjoy this, this uh, conversation with Dad. As always, I thank you for your time listening. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe and join us for future episodes. God bless and enjoy this week's visit with Tom Perry. Well, you go through with these novices. Well, I'm 
I'm still a novice most days, I'm afraid. It's interesting of all the people that I would have on Practically Ranching calling themselves a novice, I wouldn't think it was my father. But uh, welcome, <laughs> and obviously sometimes there's a few role reversals in family operations. Yes. Tom Perrier is our guest today, and as the name would indicate, and those who are close to our family and our operation already know, yes, we are closely related, I guess. This is going to be a fun one. It's going to be a tough one because of all the people I've interviewed on Practically Ranching, I can buffalo most of them. The guy that is our guest today already knows everything there is about me and probably then some, so... I won't be able to pull the wool over your eyes, but Dad, welcome to Practically Ranching. Thank you. So today we can talk about a wide array of things, as we quite often do, but what I'd like to focus on and, and have you give our listeners, and probably me, to be honest, a little more in-depth knowledge about our family, but specifically the Dale Banks name and the legacy there that, that uh, resides in there. I think a lot of folks in farming and ranching have a lot of generations. And I think sometimes we may take those for granted. And I think it's really, really useful as we go forth and look long term here in the first month of a new year that uh, we also take an opportunity to look back and catch up on, on what got us here in the first place. So if you would, the most asked question, I think, about our family and our ranch's history is who was Dale and where did the name Dale Banks come from? So if you would give us kind of a, a brief overview of, of where that name came from and how you found out exactly where it came from here a matter of years ago. Uh, yeah, there is no man named uh, Mr. Banks or Dale Banks. But the, the history of Dale Banks in the Flint Hills started about 1850 when my great-grandfather, Robert Loy, immigrated from England to Ohio and then on to Illinois to shepherd sheep. Uh, after the Civil War, he homesteaded northwest Eureka in our present headquarters area and called his new farm Dale Banks after the farm that he was raised on in Northwest England. And we've kept that name ever since. We've used it in the uh, registration of our cattle and also in our farming operation. And so that was the Loy family. Then what came next? Well, one of Mr. Loy's daughters, Amy, married a neighboring boy, farm boy, uh, named Bert Barrier. And they were married in 1903. And I think the story goes, they went on their honeymoon to Kansas City and went to the American Royal and uh, found these black hornless uh, Aberdeen Angus cattle stalled under a stairwell in the old American Royal building. And he got intrigued with them. So... In 1904, he purchased four heifers and a bull, and and that was the start of the, the Angus uh, in our operation at Dale Banks. And so that would, uh, Bert Barrier was my grandfather, and uh, it was after he got the Angus cattle 
we've found out that people came out from Eureka to view those black hornless cattle because there wasn't anything like that around here. This was in 1904, five, six, seven, that, that era. Most of the cattle were either Hereford cattle or Longhorn cattle with maybe a few shorthorns, but they, the shorthorns in that era all, all had horns. So uh, they were very unique. And most of the Angus cattle that were around were east in Missouri, Illinois, uh, some in Iowa, but uh, they were still a minority breed. I could even remember in the 70s when I was first paying attention to the beef industry, I still felt like Angus were kind of a minority breed, but nothing like what they would have been there in the, the early 20th century. That brings up a point that in my earlier days of actually running and managing Dale Banks in the, in the 70s, our advertising program and our promotion program was more to sell people on using an Angus bull than it was on actually using our cattle. Uh, because we had to convince them first to do that because, like I say, the predominant cattle were uh, Hereford cattle uh, with few shorthorn but not very many. The Angus probably had, I don't know, probably less than 5% of the total bull market in the United States at that time. Yep, there have been a lot of changes for sure. Okay, so we've gotten two generations deep into the history, Loys, then Barriers. Where did the name Perrier come in and when? Well, uh, my grandfather was very active in politics and loved Angus cattle, but he served several terms in the uh, Kansas legislature and then was appointed to the Board of Administration. The Board of Administration is a predecessor organization to the Board of Regents. So they were in charge of the, all the state colleges and universities along with the prisons and the state hospitals. Well, his wife, Amy, died uh, when my mother, Alice, was about seven years old. And when it was time for her to go to college or to go to high school, he sent her to live with an aunt at one of his sisters in California. And she graduated from a high school, Monrovia, California. But when it was time for her to go to college, Mr. Barrier had her go to Kansas State University, not to KU or Fort Hayes or uh, Emporia Teachers College. Uh, she went to Kansas State University. While there, she met a, a young engineering student, farm boy from Opie, which is just almost, their farm was almost straight north of us, about a uh, little less than 50 miles, about 40 miles. But she met him there and a while after graduation, they got married, and my father was an engineer, and uh, he worked for Lyon County as a assistant county engineer, and then he was with a construction company that uh, built a lot of the roads there. You know, it was this was a, kind of the towards the end of the Depression era, but there were still a lot of road projects, and they built uh, 54 Highway west of Wichita to Pratt. And in 160, uh, he was a managing engineer on, on, I know, those two projects. But they, they got married there in the late 30s. And so that's, that's where the Perrier name entered the picture. Now, it took a while for actually uh, my father to actually 
take part in the ranch because uh, something called World War II interfered a little bit. In 19, in, a, in the summer of 1941, he was called to active duty. He was an ROTC graduate at K-State, and so he was a reserve officer. And uh, he was called in before Pearl Harbor. In fact, my brother Chuck was born in November of night, November twenty second of nineteen forty one, just a few weeks before Pearl Harbor, and a couple of days after my brother was born, he left uh, to go to Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, to be in in the army, and then after serving uh, in North Africa and Sicily, it's kind of a interesting story. My my mother was trying to, my fa- grandfather had died and she was trying to take care of the ranch. Uh, she to- sold two complete heifer calf crops off to try to reduce the numbers down a little bit where she could manage it because the neighbors were trying to help her, but, uh, and she had one man working for her, but it was, it was pretty tough to keep things going. And, uh, uh, but the neighbors, petitioned through the Red Cross to get my father released. Uh, he was in Sicily uh, about to go on the invasion of, of Italy, and his battalion commander, my father was a company commander. Uh, he was a lieutenant on, and on orders to be a major, but the company commander called him in and said, you're going home. And he said, what? He said, you're going home. And sure enough, he was on a boat home in a, in a few days, and he arrived in Christmas Eve of 1943. And so that's the start, I guess, of the Bar- or the Perrier family at, at Dale Banks when he actually came home. So without asking you to um, assume things that maybe you weren't privy or present for, would Francis and Alice have been back in Eureka, Kansas, running Dale Banks Angus, if not for World War II? My guess is probably eventually they would have. I I don't know that for sure. You can never, uh, you don't know what sure. fate or what things will happen, but he surely wouldn't have been here when he, when he, when it happened. And of course right. my grandfather dying as a result of an accident in in uh, I think it was early forty three or well I think it might have been even late forty two but that ha- that played a big part into it because my mother even though she spent time in California and off to college and taught home ec at Harper Kansas for a little while she was uh, she was actually the one probably more interested in the Angus cattle uh, at that time frame than my father was but uh, my father told me an interesting story once about uh, they were selecting bull calves to keep for bulls and ones to steer to feed on, feed out. And, and my mother put one back into the keeping pen that my dad had cut out. And my dad said, well, that bull's got short ears. We can't sell that bull. And my mother said, I don't care. If we can't sell him, we're going to use him. He's the best bull in the pen. <laughs> And from what I understand, she won. Probably one of many discussions that Alice won, I hope. Yeah. 
anybody that was at a bull sale that we had last November realizes that we have stayed true to Alice's belief that as long as they're healthy, the ears are a long way from their uh, valuable parts and genetics because I think about a third of them had frozen ears this year thanks to the uh, February of 21 storm. Tell me a little more about Alice and her time at K-State. I think you told me one time how many female students there were at Kansas State University there in the 30s when when they were there. She would definitely have been a rare occurrence, right? Uh, That's correct. Uh, There weren't I think, I think somewhere along the line, I heard there was about 1,500 total students and only a couple hundred. It was like six to eight to one men to, to women. And so I'm sure all the ladies had no problem finding a date. <laughs> and if, if a guy found a girl to go out with him, he was, uh, he was feeling pretty good. You know, even though, even my brothers, my oldest brother, Lou, uh, started the K-State in the fall of 57. And it was still five, about five to one boys to girls then. And there was still, I think, only around 4,000 students. The boom occurred about the time that I, I started the college. That the boom, baby boom, yeah. occurred. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily, the number of, of, of girls went up too. Well, I remember you laughing when I was in K-State Animal Science Department in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, and you were shaking your head because roughly half, close to half of the students in animal science and on my judging teams, et cetera, were were females. And you just shook your head in disbelief. And yesterday I saw the picture of Ava's K-State meets judging team that just won the National Western in Denver. And there's a dozen kids on that team and there's one guy and 11, 11 girls. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what goes around comes around, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. I, uh, it, it just amazes me. I had the only, you might say animal science class that I had girls in was genetics. And there were there were a few because it was the only genetics taught in the old university, and so some of them in, in biology or or biological sciences would take genetics, and and then and maybe one or two pre vet students. There was a, there was not many pre vet students that were girls either, because their chance of getting in was pretty slim. Yeah, and that has definitely gone full circle as well. All right, so we are at Generation 3, the Loys, the Barriers, and then Francis and Alice Perrier. Generation 4. Generation 4 was uh, three brothers, Modest brother Lou. The next brother was Chuck. Lou was born in 39, Chuck in late 41. And I, I came along in uh, 45, early 45. So I'm the baby. I'm still known as Tommy to a lot of people around but my oldest brother Lou had a chemical engineering degree from Kansas State University and, you know, had a successful engineering career, mostly in the petroleum industry, managing refineries. And, uh, we lost Lou uh, about two years ago now, but brother Chuck graduated from Kansas State and he actually was the first one to come back to Dale Banks and uh, instituted a 
started the institute a lot of positive things i think for our operation recognizing that uh, we had to make some changes and do some things uh, a little differently and then i went to kansas state and graduated in 67 and my plans kind of got derailed like a little like my father's uh, a little thing called the vietnam uh, war came along and uh, i had plans to go to graduate school in fact i'd been accepted in in reproductive physiology and university of maryland and but i had to decline because uh, my draft board we were under the draft situation and they would not allow me to defer any further in in an attempt to try to salvage that situation and maybe go on to graduate school in another year i joined the national guard was scheduled to go to officers training school and then the vietnam war really got interfered with it because i was called active duty and so spent about a year and a half on active duty before carolyn and i came back to the operation uh, i met carolyn at at kansas state university and even though her uncles teased her that she was going to go up there and find a farm boy she she, she told him she wasn't well she kind of did <laughs> maybe a rancher yeah she, she thought well, you were going to be a reproductive physiologist right yeah yeah anyway we had a shotgun after we got called up uh, <laughs> to active duty we were scheduled to get married in the in the summer of uh, 68 and those plans got derailed further because there was no way going to be on just you know on active duty and, and and get married rather it was going to be really tough so we had a shotgun marriage we arranged it in a few weeks and got married and after spending about another year and a half in the army uh, now wait a second i want to make sure and clarify your open-ended joke there if your shotgun wedding that was May of 68? Yeah. And your first child came along in no, November of 73. <laughs> the, the, yeah. you, you probably yeah. should have gone on to that reproductive physiology uh, master's, Tom. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one long gestation. Yeah, that's one long gestation period. All right. Proceed. After spending about a year and a half in military, uh, which in some ways... There were some good things, and in some ways, you know, you know, military. I, I, I wouldn't want it for my own life for, a, for a career. But we came back, and and at that point in time, I think I thought I was out of college too long to, to go to grad school. So I didn't even, can we didn't even consider applying uh, again anywhere, and and try to get back in into it. And I decided I would try to improve our herd and expand it some. And, and so that's in August of 1969, we came back and just in time for the county fair and uh, been going to the county fair ever since. That's good. Okay, so I want to back up just a minute or two because you mentioned, as you talked about Chuck being the first one back here to Dale Banks and implementing quite a few positive changes. What were some changes that, that he would have seen that you two would have seen there in the, what, mid and late 60s, right? Some of the things that were happening in our area 
was this Flint Hills of Kansas is a, is a native grass grazing area uh, that you know goes back hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of years, and uh, uh, it's one of the last remnants of the tall grass prairie. And the reason it's left, two reasons: one, it's there's a lot of rock and it's hilly and it doesn't lend itself to the plow and two the topsoil is is pretty shallow in a lot of these areas on top of the hills and the side hills it's very shallow and so uh, it it a lot of it was left in native grass uh, historically the cattle came up from texas and were trailed up here originally and then grazed in the summer and then then sent on to the slaughter market uh, then, then later they came by the rail, and when I was a little kid, they came, they started coming by truck, but it was still predominantly a summer grazing, and you know our operation was a cow calf, but we did, we did graze a lot of cattle ourselves also, when I was a when I was a kid, and and actually fed most of them out and sent them on to Kansas City or St. Joe, but in the late 60s this area started turning more to cow calf so that was one thing that my brother and i saw as an opportunity we needed to expand our cow herd and we thought the angus angus cattle would be a had enough advantages that we could we could sell more bulls and so that's why we started expanding but we also saw that uh, we needed to make our Angus cattle better and we need to uh, document them more. Well, the way you bred cattle for generations was you looked at them and decided which one was the best, you know, and based on a lot of valid criteria, but a lot of it was just, you know, guessing. And uh, so, the way you know, you went out to find a new herd bull you went and found, tried to find a son or a grandson of the international grand champion of a couple of years before, or the Denver champion. But we didn't really do a lot of improvements. We didn't do a lot of documentation, so we didn't know what that calf was. My brother started AIing in, uh, in I think it was '63. But that time. We, we had to own, be one of three owners of, of the bull to be able to use the bull AI. So it was basically in herd AI. And, you know, we did probably make some improvement because we got a few more out of what we considered to be our better herd bulls, but it wasn't drastic. My brother enrolled us in the Angus Herd Improvement Program, which I think was started in the late 50s, but it was started not as a data recording program. It was started as a, as a program to have an evaluator come look at the cattle and put a, put a score, I guess it was a score. We never had it done, uh, but we knew a little about it. But uh, it was someone like a regional manager that would come and say, you know, this cow needs to go to town and this cow you can keep and anything, but it was all on visual appraisal and it was on the day he showed up, 
you didn't see the production off the cattle or anything else and so uh it and eventually it's, they started recording weaning weights and that's kind of when we got and i think our first calf, calf crop was in 65 that was recorded on ahir and that was just essentially the pedigree information and the weaning weight but we didn't do a lot of improvement Initially, I take that back. Initially, we, we saw some pretty good improvement in the winning weights and the productivity of our cow herd because we had some freeloaders. You know, we had some cows that were big, nice, good-looking cows that didn't have very good calf. And we were able to call some of those cows and replace them with heifers and do a little better. A lot of that, we probably could have looked at a lot of those and, and noted it. And some of that, of course, was done, but it did help us. And then the other source of genetic improvement besides calling is the, is a herd bull. And that's the predominant way to improve your herd is see the, the bulls you use. Well, the only source of outside bulls was to go buy one. You bought one and you used it on you know, 30 cows or 25 cows in a season and and you got that many calves. And the other thing was to use, you know, our best calves out of our calf crop. And we did that and we did see some improvement, but it got to a point, I don't think we were doing much, you know, we, 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 we kind of got to a plateau. So were those initial weaning weights in 65, 6, 7, were those actual weaning weights or did you have AHIR adjusting those to a 205-day or two, I guess it started out longer than that, but when did they start adjusting those to an age constant basis? Yeah, they they had an adjustment okay. uh, to 205 days and uh, there was, uh, I think there was some attempt along there somewhere to put an age of dam correction in there too. So, uh, and I can't tell you which year that was or anything, but it, uh, there, there was, there was some deals, but it was pretty well for in herd use in the late sixties. And we started taking yearling weights and, but it was still in herd improvement, uh, with very little, drastic i guess uh improvements and and it, and it was it, it was the best we had but you know and i think back now we you know our first sale catalog in 1972 all we all we published is i think winning weights and or winning ratios i think and and yearling ratios and the bulk of the folks that were selling bulls at the time would have thought that was crazy right to put that information in there in addition to just Siren Dam, maybe cow family name. Yeah, I think you're right. They, they, the pedigree information with date of birth is about all, and maybe a footnote with uh, what a, a full brother sold for, or what, uh, how much they paid for the sire, or, or what grand sire was champion at some show, or maybe even a, a great grand sire. I chuckle here and nobody can see me smiling on the podcast, but um, with all the information and genetic predictions, DNA, multi-trade indices, and all the data that we have today, we're still writing those same footnotes about how they're related <laughs> to the National Western Stock Show champion or how much 
a sister sold for an XYZ sale. But I digress. So the first sale, 1972, you were publishing weaning and yearling ratios and collecting weaning and yearling weights. Not birth weights yet. When would you started weighing calves? You know, I, I thought about the other day, I ought to look that up when we uh, weighed the first calves at birth. And I'm guessing it was around 74, but I don't know for sure because I think we might have been like the weaning weights. Uh, we'd actually taken weaning weights a couple of years before we started submitting them on AHIR. In fact, my dad bought a, he bought the scale, the single animal scale in, in uh, probably 55, something wow. like that. I, I don't know exactly what the year, but I calculated out how many thousands of head we'd run across that thing. <laughs> was that the guillotine we head catch that we had when I was a kid? That was he it. bought that in 55? I think it was 55. Wow. And it, it was unique. Now it had a, it had a squeeze chute on top of it, an old WW squeeze chute with a guillotine head gate. But you know, you could accomplish, you do your vaccinations and everything and weigh them at the same time with the same deal. And so it was unique. Uh, in fact, you know, I Dad, remember... growing growing up, I heard that head catch called a lot of things, and <laughs> unique was never one that I remember you or Raymond or Harold or anyone using. <laughs> no, uh, but that's amazing, because... though, that a shoot that could both weigh and restrain an animal was really a big deal. That today that's commonplace, but in, in the fifties, just having a scale underneath it was unique on its own. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the, in the, in the sixties, a few county extension councils were buying single animal scales to go out and weigh people's cattle and uh, winning time. And, uh, they were all just, that's, they were just a cage a cage on there to walk the animal on. So uh, you had to have another, it's best if you can accomplish more than one thing at the same time, you know? And uh, so, but I do remember back in that era that we were, we'd been weighing cattle for probably 10 or 15 years. And I heard a couple of breeders said, we're not going to do that. That's, that's silly. We know what good cattle are. We don't need a scale to tell us what they are. Yeah, I've heard that a time or two. So you mentioned cow families, or I, maybe I did. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the first four females and a bull Mr. Barrier purchased and brought to Dale Banks in 1904. You've done a little research. Do any of our current cow families at Dale Banks trace back to those four or where do most of ours stem from? We don't think that any of the present cows traced to the 1904 purchases. Uh, we're, we're reasonably certain of that. You got to realize that sometimes some of these animals, uh, uh, when they were purchased and registered and transferred back in that era, you know, a guy did it probably in his basement office he was a secretary and did it whenever he got around to it and when you you say secretary you mean the breed secretary the breed secretary yes and uh 
uh, I some of the research I did find uh, showed that you know animals that were maybe born in 1908 were registered in 1910 and and maybe transferred to somebody find a transfer two and a half three years later but <laughs> you know they were probably transferred before that you know they were probably sold I mean before that but we don't think anything traces to 1904 but we're certain that we have a majority of our cow families traced to 1908 to 1920 purchases uh, we've got we've got the princesses the blackbirds the black caps the uh, the promptitudes the enamels uh, the ericas now the ericas are a little later that, that we think that's somewhere uh, purchases maybe in the in the late 20s or 30s a, a cow uh, and I I don't remember exactly when but most of these others our cow families uh, go back to that era and a few folks that maybe aren't involved as deeply in the seed stock world as others make sure that we understand cow families basically for the most part in pedigreed cattle breeding the daughters of a certain cow will retain that cow's name and then a unique number to her within that herd so if princess 3809 has a calf at two years of age, that calf will be Princess 5411 or something like that. And, and so that princess name gets passed down generation after generation. Sires quite often the same way, although if you have a more no, well-known sire, a lot of times we'll change that name. But uh, just wanted to throw that in there so folks understood what we were talking about. So as yeah. far as cow families, how would you see them different today in selection and cattle breeding, mating decisions compared to let's say when you first started making some of those mating decisions and selection decisions in the in the late 60s and 70s or or has it changed when we started to get enough data on our cow herd especially the weaning weights we started to recognize some things about certain cow families that seemed like they were you know they they were maybe better or poorer in certain areas and it seemed like that carried on, you know, uh, from generation to generation. We used to say the promptitudes, that was our growth cattle. Uh, we had uh, the black cow, uh, the, the blackbirds were our, yeah, the cows that had more milk. Uh, you know, there were certain other ones that were uh, more, more complete in all, all ways. But as we started AIing to outside bulls, and were able to match and, and also had more data on these cows and, and that we could characterize them. And we say, well, this cow needs more milk. We find, we find a sire that'll put a little more milk in the, in the progeny genetically. And, or, or if they, they need a little more growth, we'll find something that'll put a little more growth in them. And so now, I don't think we can say that we have much difference between the cow line. They're all pretty comparable, I think. We have, I don't know, 10 or 12 different cow families. And especially years ago, before we'd kind of evened them up, you could tell which cow families were the best ones because of, of 
there was more of them. They got retained. They had they had calves on schedule, and and the calves were good, and so you ended up retaining more of those. I don't think today there's quite that difference, but we do have more blackbirds than any other uh, any other group, and I'm sure that in the late uh, 60s and 70s uh, we propagated the blackbirds and call less of them than we did some of the other cow lines. And like I say, now I think they've evened up more. Well, and if you remember, um, Derek Jackson that bought a heifer from us through last year's sale, 21, he had gone back in our pedigrees, found out information that I didn't even know, but that was a, that was a heifer, that was a blackbird cow family heifer that he purchased, and he went back through, and I put it in our catalog, but she had like four generations in a row that had calved to the first AI on the exact same day. And he went back six or eight or 10 generations and, and whatever we've done good or bad, it seems like those blackbird cows have, have uh, shown that there is some inherent reproductive efficiency, fertility, you know, consistency there that as hard as I may have tried to screw it up by <laughs> mating them to the wrong bull through the, the years, they've still got it. So I, I think I, I was a guy 10 years ago that just kind of almost scoffed at cow families and, and saying there was more value in a certain cow family with all the EPDs that we had at the time and, and now have even more. Again, kind of like the uh, phrase we used before, what goes around comes around. I, I think there is still some value in that. I think we see even though we try to complementary mate these females to a sire that improves on a weakness they have, and, and consequently we may moderate a strength that they had, uh, I think there's still, especially when we talk about just functional longevity and, and reproductive efficiency and, and soundness and things like that, I think there's probably some value there that, that we don't even realize in these cow some of these cow families. We used to name, when my, my father was doing all the, you know, the registrations, uh, we named them in numerical order. In other words, the first, first Blackbird would have been Blackbird Adele Banks. The second one was Blackbird two Adele Banks. And then the next one was three. It didn't matter what, which cow it was out of. They, they just got numerical. The, uh, when we started ready, when we registered them, we down the line and you could see that Back in the late uh, 60s, we had probably four of the cow lines that were pretty even in numbers, which was kind of interesting. But one of those lines, as we got more data, more information, we started calling probably a little heavier, started to drop out. And that we still have some of those cows, but uh, it took some other breeding, you know, to improve them a little bit, but they, they, they didn't keep up with the blackbirds. And so, and then there's some others that have probably increased as we we've gone on, but, uh, but especially back there in the late sixties and early seventies, there was, we, we were changing the cattle some, but, uh, it was a little based on a lot what they'd done before. Right. So through the years, I guess, let's just say since you've been back, if you had to 
list your top one or two challenges that you've had in terms of owning and managing the ranch? Can you can you narrow it down to one or two? What what have been the hardest uh, <laughs> mountains to climb? I guess. First, it starts with the kids. No. Well, especially the eldest. <laughs> Let, let's skip that one because we're that could be a whole nother hour podcast. So let's yes. let's skip the Matthew challenge. Oh, challenges. Gosh, probably weather is probably one of the biggest things. Uh, you know, and we can't control that. And it seemed like it's unique every year. That, that That's probably the big one. Other things are just things we can't we can't we can't control uh, uh, the black swan events and things that uh, occur. But a lot of those things we survive and and we get get along and we we get frustrated with it. But there are things we cannot actually uh, do anything about. A lot of cases ourselves. Uh, so uh, let's try to do something with the things we can do. And that's probably when a lot of my frustrations, especially in the in the seventies and into the eighties, we were trying to we were trying to breed cattle and improvement, trying to weigh cattle and get some data on them and everything. But it was frustrating. There in the late sixties and early seventies, we weren't making much improvement. We just didn't have the tools available to breed these cattle. Uh, the show ring was probably still as good as a, it, it was a, still a major tool and it just wasn't good enough until we started getting enough records and pooling it with all the other breeders and other people started to doing what, what we'd been doing since the mid sixties. We didn't make much improvement. Now, open AI, uh, occurred in i think it was in 74 or 5 and they allowed uh members of the american ag association to register calves out of bulls they they did not they were not an owner of and that allowed us to do a lot that was pretty controversial at the time even even my father thought it was a bad deal he thought it was going to be dominated by just a few breeders but i pointed out a couple things to him. I said, well, we don't have access to what, uh, we can't go out and buy that at that time, probably a $10,000 bull or $20,000 bull, uh, there in the sixties, uh, and into the seventies, maybe a 25 or $30,000 bull. So let's use some semen out of one and find and be able to match what the bull offers to what the cow offers and try to improve our, our cows. And, but it was awful frustrating through the seventies. Now the economic problems and the problem of the cattle business in the mid seventies, probably way overshadowed my ability to do much about, try to do much about getting changes to how we selected cattle and, and, and the records we had, but it, it's, and it's been frustrating all along. I mean, it's still frustrating. I'm sure that we've got traits that we would like to document and uh, have tools to improve that uh, we're not there yet. We, we just keep keep working on it. But when the EPDs expected progeny differences where tools were developed, it just made a world of difference. 
but we had it on proven sires. It was only a, uh, you know, not a, not a big big number of them. And then we then we got a few more. And in fact, uh, the early EPDs, uh, uh, the association uh, essentially eliminated any data on 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 natural calves. They essentially only the data only had uh, you could only get EPDs on on uh, highly used uh, AI sires. And I was kind of instrumental in getting the board to take another look at that and say, well, you know, there's there's some bulls that are being used naturally out there that sure they don't have as many progeny, but we need to get them into the system because they'll never get discovered or never get used enough if if they don't have any EPDs to start with. And uh, and so they started they kind of changed the what they were using and uh, how they how they managed the EPD system. Well, I've heard you and and others say the same thing you weighed calves for years and years and years and you compared them to other calves within the herd and tried to select for the biggest ones and keep the biggest heifers and etc cetera, etc cetera, and you made very little if any progress and it was once you were able to use epds that of course i think everybody knows today allow you to compare your calves versus the next breeder down the road versus the breeder in montana or florida or wherever and once we were able to do that that cross herd comparison uh genetic selection is has been on the accelerator ever since and so that allowed us to factor out basically factor out the environmental effects and, and focus on what those genetic uh, variation were in the in the late 60s and early 70s the bull testing stations started coming about and uh and there was it was a good good idea i guess uh, uh, what started it that we need to we need to compare these bulls and see how they'll do and which one can gain better and everything and so there was some really valid good thoughts behind that and but what happened it became a horse race it became almost like the show ring uh, who could who could have the manipulate his cattle to get the fastest gaining ones and push the devil out of them no matter what it did to their fertility and to their feet and leg and longevity, we did find some cattle that, that would gain faster that way. Uh, but it was uh, some of the people that were pushing that real hard lost sight of what we were really trying to accomplish. We were trying to improve the, the overall quality of, of cattle, and they viewed it as a, as a kind of a horse race. So... You've been back at Dale Banks since August of 69 for good. So in 50, 60 years of uh, being in farming and ranching, what's the biggest change that you've seen, either in the Angus and pedigreed livestock business or agricultural production in general or the people or whatever? What's the biggest change from the 60s? I don't know if I can point out one big thing. Now, the development of expected progeny difference in performance data uh, and predictions, that has changed, uh, I think, the seed stock business and also the commercial business of buying bulls. Now, overall, 
I'm not sure that's the biggest change in the agriculture. Some people say, you know, everything's gotten bigger, and that's true. And a lot of people have exited uh, the, the industry. That's been happening probably since 18, right after World War One. In the 30s, there was a massive exodus in the 50s, and again in the 80s. And, uh, you know, sure, we're getting better, or bigger, excuse me, but uh, that, is, that change has kind of been happening all along, and I'm sure it'll continue to happen. Now, there are certain things in the, in the cattle side of it that'll uh, mitigate it a little bit, is that we still have to operate on the land. It still takes some people out there managing the, you know, you can't manage it from a from the 50th story of the Empire State Building, but you have to have people out there, and that, and that's still the way we're going to run run cattle. We've got to see them. I'm not sure it's not the show ring type of seeing, but we got to observe what our cattle do uh, in the, in the environment they're in. But I don't know if I can point out one one big item that's that's happened that. That's drastic, I guess. Well, it's it kind of goes back to when I asked you about the biggest challenge, and you said the weather. I hate talking about the weather. We always do it because it drives nearly everything that we do. It drives the markets. It drives our daily tasks. And honestly, like you said, I think, we may hate these weather changes, but when we come out on the other side, hopefully we're better because of it. And we learned something, about maybe an expensive lesson, but we learned something. And if we do it right, I think it helps us as cattle breeders to select the ones that can make it through and can do their best on low inputs and can make it through some struggles, drought, cold nights, whatever the case may be. And, and so uh, when, when we talk about biggest challenge, and biggest changes, yeah, they they probably they probably do go hand in glove sometimes. Any last thoughts? Uh, we have made some real improvements in uh, Genghis cattle and and cattle in general. We went through an era there in the eighties where uh, we had tremendous competition from other breeds. Angus had had gained a pretty good increase in the in the seventies but we were struggling to maintain that but it seemed like as we got into the eight into the 90s we started moving ahead and i think a lot of that was because of uh, seeing that we needed to provide a product to our consumer that was better than what we had been doing in in the 70s and 80s something that they they really wanted and they wanted to eat and uh, i think some of the tools we have developed with EPDs helped us do that, and they're being improved all the time. Uh, I think we'll continue to see advances that way. Uh, an example, the EPD, we had an EPD for marbling back in the 80s. In my opinion, it was not very good. We advanced the ultrasound uh, method of evaluating live animals that added tremendously the amount of data, and I think we improved the formula. And, and we were able then to select for marbling. And up until then, we had no way 
to select for marbling. And they just used an Angus bull and knew that was better than most of the Hereford bulls, the limousine bulls out there. But uh, other than that, we didn't have any way to advance the marbling in Angus cattle. And we do have that tool. There's some other things, other traits that were uh, just come on that, that we've got EPDs for, and they're going to improve as time goes on. And I'm hoping we'll get some other, other selection EPDs for traits that are that we need to have in the Angus cattle, such as you know longevity. I think that's coming. It's a little more of a struggle, but so was so was marbling, and. So it was birth weight, and anyway, nobody had anything for it. Now, those those traits are more highly heritable, but we'll, we'll get there. Yep, hopefully we do fairly soon, but uh, you're right. It, it is a challenge, but that's one of those challenges we keep keep going after. Well, I think that brings us around uh, to our time. I appreciate you being with us today, and thanks for holding the family together and Dale Banks together, and hopefully your next generation and generation after that will continue to do the good work that you and mom and grandma and granddad Perrier and all the barriers and lawyers before them did as well. So thanks a bunch, dad. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Practically Ranching brought to you by Dale Banks Angus. If you enjoyed the podcast, heck, even if you didn't, help us improve by leaving a comment with your review wherever you heard us. And if you want to listen again, click subscribe and catch us next week. God bless, and we look forward to visiting again soon.